I want to pray for us before we start. I to get my papers in order here. Let me pray. Lord, you are truly a cornerstone upon which your church is built, upon which our hope is placed. Father, if there are those here today who have had experiences in life and they're children of yours and their hope is wavering, sustain them, Lord. If there are those right now standing on stones that are cracked and with no foundation, I pray that they would know you. In Jesus' name, amen. One, um, I'm going to start with a very obvious statement to a believer who's been a believer for a long time, uh, that Jesus is our model. He is our model. He is our model in every different way. Um, the model of perfection, any aspect of good, Jesus is. Um, it might not be as obvious um, if you aren't a Christian or maybe you're a Christian, a baby Christian. Uh, I'm not using that in a condescending way, just as time, the beginning of time, maybe you're a new Christian. You don't know Jesus as the model. I remember um, I was on a Bible study in Hebrews and got to Hebrews 12. And he quotes from the Old Testament saying that the Lord disciplines those he loves, like his loving father. And the response I got as we were walking through this is like, hey, I can't relate to this because I didn't, I didn't experience this. And my father didn't discipline. My father uh, was disappointing. Um, and so I don't know how to understand this concept of discipline and love paired together. And just throughout the conversation, it was realized that they were trying to reconcile this concept of discipline and love through the lens of their earthly father rather than fixing their eyes on the model of the loving father that Hebrews is pointing to in Christ. When we think about any good pastor or counselor or teacher or sibling, Jesus is the perfect model. It's important because then it also gives you endurance to sustain disappointment and failure that you may face at the hands of people. Because Jesus is the perfect model. Even when it comes to parenting, he's the perfect parent. But maybe you might not see him that way, and, or maybe you do see him that way, and because you see him as the model, you constantly see yourself as the failure, as a parent. He's the perfect parent, and I clearly don't line up. I'm unworthy, and I'm completely failing my children right now. And I want to assure you, in some ways, for all of us, that's true. It's true. But he's our Messiah first. The Savior, reassurer, cleanser, perfecter, author, comforter. Our failures are transitioned into victories because of him. There was a mother who was watching her son. I was doing a wedding, and they, were at the, they had the first dance, and the mother... <clears throat> was watching her son with his bride as they were doing the first dance. And if I do a wedding, I like to ask the parents how they think they did. Um, and it's like, well, how do, you, how do you think you did on a scale of one to 10? Um, and she said a two. And oftentimes, you know, parents will give a low number and some parents will be honest and be like, I don't know, five or six if they're a believer. If they say a 10, I just share the gospel flat out immediately. 
But she said it too. Um, and, you know, just asking, why do you say it too? And just, just went down the gamut uh, about failure after failure after failure. And I said, yet, there your son is with his bride, both loving Jesus, now glorifying the Lord through covenant of marriage. At your helm. What does it look like in real time to have leaned on the Lord during that time? And look, at, look at what he does. You can trust him. You can trust him as your parent because he loves his children. The Lord cares for us, his children. And he cares even for his children's children because they're his children. And we can trust him because of that. He's the perfect example. He is our model. And before that, he's the Messiah. And I think we see a perfect example of that in this narrative here in Mark, <clears throat> in Mark 5. Let me give a quick lay of the land. It opens up. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. There are these words that are being used all throughout this not all throughout, but in the beginning and in maybe next paragraph, you have gathered, you have thronged, you have a bunch of people just in this area. And it, it gives me anxiety to think about because I hate being, you know, bunched up with a bunch of people. I just don't like it. I remember it was just maybe, I don't know, well, maybe it was five years ago. And, you know, one of my good friends invited me out to Green Turtle he was just going through a lot, and he needed, you know, a friend. But he wanted to go to Green Turtle on a Thursday at, like, 11. I'm like, bro, I don't know if I'm at that age anymore, man. And we got there, and it was just nothing but, you know, a bunch of young people uh, who may be in school at the time. Uh, and it was just packed, moving like this, and people are bumping me and bumping me. And at the end of the night, I told him, I said, nah, I'm not here anymore, man. I almost just hit that guy. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. This word throng that it uses in the second paragraph, it's, it means pressed together. This is shoulder to shoulder, stomach to butt, packed people. This Jesus has a lot of fame and people are eager to see him. They're eager to get something from him. They're eager to hear from him. Maybe a combination of all of them. And he's not merely amongst the chaos. He's the reason for the chaos. They're there to see him. He's causing this mess. I can't help but seeing this big crowd, and I think about uh, my father used to teach us um, about the different phrases on a dollar bill, one of the Latin phrases, e pluribus unum. It means out of many, one. And I think about in this passage, you have a large crowd. Meanwhile, individuals are seen. Jesus is aware of individuals in this packed crowd of shoulder to shoulder, stomach to butt people pushing around, pressed against him. Out of the many individuals, there's one whose daughter is dying, and Jesus says, I'll go with you. As he's on his way with this man, out of the many pressed around as Jesus is following, there's one who's unknown, and Jesus says, I want to know who you are. You read through this, and as it unfolds, you're seeing that this is a story of two clocks one clock is a timer, the other is a stopwatch. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, as he's called, has a daughter who's dying and the timer is running out. 
The woman, the anonymous woman, who has an issue of blood, has a stopwatch, whose time has just been climbing and climbing, and it now reads 12 years, 12 years dealing with an issue of blood. Just this past week, I had migraine. I, I sometimes get migraines, and it, it stinks, but um, I had it for three days. Day two, I'm like, Lord, why? Day two. 12 years. And I think that some of us can relate to either one of those clocks, maybe both. Maybe something is running out for you. What, what do you see slipping from your grasp or is running out? What do you see has lasted way too long? You're looking at your stopwatch and like, man, this is still the case. I can't believe this is still going on. I want to dive into two of these individuals for a little bit. The first one is Jairus. Verse 22. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. So Jairus is coming before Jesus, and he's like, Hey, I need you to come with me. Because the time is running out of my daughter, and I need you to touch her before she dies. Because, you know, if she dies, then that's it. So I need you to do something now. I'll come back to that point, but that's important. Something about the wording of this passage when we're talking about Jairus that I love is just pretty incredible. Is you have, it starts off, the passage starts off as saying there was a great crowd gathered. And then the first person that's introduced is this ruler named Jairus. He's named once and then for the rest of the passage, he's referred to as a ruler, the ruler of the synagogue. And our English word synagogue comes from the Greek word. It kind of just sounds like synagogue, really. And it means a large gathering. It's just a gathering of people. And you have this ruler of a large gathering who comes falling at the feet of Jesus in the midst of a large gathering. Two rulers, two synagogues. The other thing to notice about Jairus is any title like ruler of a synagogue, if you're familiar with the Gospels, then they are the antagonists. They're the bad guys. Any elder or leader in the quote-unquote Jewish temple or synagogue at the time, Pharisee, Sadducee, Sadducee, anybody in the Sanhedrin, ruler of the synagogue, I mean, Jesus has some run-ins with these guys to the point where it's like, man, if we ever ran into a ruler of a synagogue, you know, I just like, because you kind of get that sense. They're the bad guys. They're the enemy. And if Jairus isn't a personal enemy of Jesus, he at least is an enemy by association. And a, a, a characteristic we're definitely familiar with making. You can meet a stranger, not know them from Adam, but you find out what team they belong to. Maybe politically, religiously. And from that point, you know, oh, you're, you're, on, you're the bad guys. You're the enemy. Yet he falls at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, I'll go with you. Something to learn about the way that we view enemies or enemies of Jesus and the way that we respond to them. Uh, for the Christian, it's not new. Jesus 
tells us that you will have enemies and then he even tells you how to treat them. Love them. Because the way that we see them is that to them, we are their enemy. But they're not ours. It's the same case here for Jesus. The one thing that makes Jesus an enemy is someone's decision to not be with him, not see him as Messiah, not see him as the one. If Jairus at any point saw Jesus as an enemy, the only thing that transformed that title is his desire to lay at his feet. That's it. Anything or anyone that we may see as an enemy of the Christian faith or of you as a Christian, it shouldn't be anything between you and them that makes you enemies. The only wedge that exists is a decision or lack thereof they've made between themselves and Jesus. And that's why we can't sit and look at flesh and blood and say, man, I'm in a battle with this person. But they're still the mission field, even as an enemy. That's important. Humility and desperation is what we see in Jairus. And Jesus models perfectly what it ought to look like as a good parent. I mean, Jesus is making time for those who oppose him. Is there a better definition of parenting? Isn't that just the way it is, matriculating through life? Being able to grow up in a daycare, because my mother did daycare our entire lives, you kind of see, man, as soon as like, I don't know, one and three quarter years hits and two is just peeking around a quarter, kids just start turning up. It's wild. It's crazy. Jesus makes time for those who oppose him. The story is interrupted as Jesus says, hey, I'll go with you. Your, your, your timer's running down. Your daughter's about to die. I'll, I'll go with you. And then the story is immediately interrupted. Mark 5, 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There's that word, throng. It's a weird word. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and it was no better but rather grew worse. If you're familiar with Jewish customs, if you're familiar with what it means to have an issue with blood, the fact of the matter is blood is present and it's lasted for 12 years. That means you're an outcast for 12 years. Blood makes you unclean. And so this woman is truly an outcast. She can't be a part of the gathering. She doesn't exist in the synagogue. She can't take part in the ceremonies. And she most certainly can't get near the ruler of the synagogue and make him unclean. He has to be with the people. He can't be unclean. Yet here she is clamoring for an opportunity and she just touched Jesus' cloak and he stops and asks, who touched me? That makes me think back to Genesis, these rhetorical questions that the Lord asks to give his people an opportunity to be faithful. In the garden, Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, and he's walking through the garden in the cool of the day, it says. And he says, where are you? 
And who told you you were naked? As if he needed to be filled in on information. Who touched me? A rhetorical question that offers the opportunity for your anonymity to be removed completely. This person no one knows is in our midst. And I want to know who it is that she would be made known and that she would know she's known. Also, the grace that God offers his people. You often hear people have arguments where it's like, you know, hey, why would God put a tree in the garden anyway in the first place if he knew they were going to sin? It's because he wants to give you an opportunity to respond in faithfulness. That's what love does. We have things like trees, the sun, the moon, the stars. They do what they're told every single day. They're programmed to. But that's not love. See, love has to do with volition, freedom of the will. When we come to Jesus, it's never an issue of intellect. Learning helps. I'm a nerd, I'll tell you. Learning helps. But the one who stays far from Christ and the one who comes near, it's not a difference of intellect and knowledge. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of volition. And so Jesus asks who this person is to give her an opportunity to show her desire to come forward and come to Jesus. And this is what it says. She comes in fear and trembling. That's healthy response to who Jesus is. It's a healthy response to who the Lord is. I've said this before. We talk about fear and we talk about trembling and it's like, ah, I don't know, man. You know, most of our songs talk about God's love today. I, I don't know if fear and trembling is an adequate response of us. It's like, we're, it's cool now. You know, we're good. You know, he's chill, you know, just chill out. It's God. I don't think a God unworthy of our fear would be worthy of our worship, Jamin. I don't think that would be true. But here's what's beautiful about it. It says that she has fear and trembling, yet she comes to him. That's the difference between fearing someone out of just raw ignorance and fright and having reverence for someone who's good. There's something about Jesus that says he's good. But there's also something about him that said he's powerful beyond measure. And I am just a lowly human being. And so she comes before him. This unclean individual falls before him and confesses everything. Who touched me? And she tells him. It says she told the truth in everything that happened. A practice that we go through every single Sunday before service. Because of this good God who we ought to fear and have reverence for, we can go to him in confidence rather than arrogance. Rather than strutting before him like, look, man, I don't really know who you really are, but, you know, the rules say I got to come and tell you what I did yesterday, so I'm going to do it. anyway." No, it's confidence and knowing that, man, Lord, you have the ability to snatch the breath from my lungs, yet you didn't, and you call me daughter and son. It's confidence because you're good. The author of Hebrews says that we go to the throne of grace with confidence. Once upon a time, you enter into the, th the mercy seat and you would get struck dead because of God's holiness that overwhelms your uncleanness. But we've been cleansed through Christ. And so now we go with confidence and we say, Lord, look at how broken I am. This is the way my brokenness and my sin showed up yesterday, the week before, the week before. 
because we know we've been forgiven. That's a good confidence. That's a freedom. Meanwhile, Jairus and his boys are waiting. He was on the way to go see Jairus. I'm sure there's a ruler of the synagogue in this picture. At least some other prominent people are seeing this. He's like, who's this outcast? This woman with blood. She's unclean. She's touching Jesus. Ruining his time now doing ministry. How's he supposed to go and see Jairus' daughter now? Who does this no-name think she is? And Jesus says, daughter. There's two rulers of synagogues in this picture, two daughters. Jesus has time for both of them. He has time for both of them. And you know how I know he sees this woman as a loving father is because he takes time to correct her as well next. You look at this story and the woman and she has the issue and she sees Jesus and she's like, look, if I just touch him, I'll be made well. I want to offer you a way of viewing this, this, this narrative. Contextually speaking, Cloak grabbing was a thing. It was a thing. It happened to Paul. People would grab the cloaks of prominent individuals hoping that they had some type of power that would bring them good fortune, healing, whatever it is. If it wasn't cloak grabbing, it was weird stuff like ostrich egg touching. Anybody touch any ostrich eggs to get some luck recently? No? Yeah, this stuff existed. And here's the reality. 12 years she's an outcast. Not only 12 years she's an outcast, 12 years she's suffered much, it says. Physicians taking advantage of her, saying, do this thing. 10 steps of how to get rid of your blood issue this way. Taking all of her money, she has nothing left. And then Jesus comes, and he's actually just added to the list of things that can make her well. And what he does Rather than allowing her to grab his cloak, be made well, and go on thinking that Jesus is just on another list of some powerful stuff. He says, daughter, your faith made you well. No, no, no. Next time you have an issue in your life, don't come clamoring around trying to grasp at cloaks that are around you. The object of your faith today has made you well. This is good news for anyone who is wrestling with how much faith they're faithing right now. Am I doing it right? How strong is it? It's not your ability to have strong faith. It's the one you have faith in that's strong. Anyone falling off of a cliff with a branch hanging does not sit and try to quantify how strong that branch is, or I'm sorry, how much faith they have before they must reach out and grab the branch. It, it, it just uh, it's just an incoherent conversation to have. How much faith do I need before I reach out? Like, no, reach out. The question is, will the branch hold you? That's the question. That's why the Christian boldly professes that Jesus is the way, truth, and life. And it's a loving thing because there's so many people in the world grasping at branches that can't hold them. They're grasping cloaks and ostrich eggs all around the world saying that, yeah. I mean, we also agree Jesus, he's on the list. Like, no, Jesus is the list. There is no one else. Her theology is wrong. Her orthodoxy is wrong. She's unclean. She's all out there touching people and stuff like that. I mean, what? Orthopraxy is wrong. 
Yet she stumbles on the right one. And she's made well. And Jesus sends her in what is true. This makes me think about an apologist named Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi was a Christian apologist. And he went to be with the Lord, I want to say maybe four years ago, stomach cancer. Before he was a Christian apologist, he was a Muslim apologist. And he made his living going around and debating Christian apologists, trying to tear down the Christian faith, more so just ridiculing and scoffing at them. But over time, some of the arguments that he heard from Christian apologists was kind of just sitting in them and buried in his heart. And he writes in his book that he remembered just asking himself the question as he was going through his traditional Muslim practices and prayers, just in his mind thinking, man, I mean, is Jesus the Messiah? I don't know. I mean, I genuinely don't know. So he prays to Allah and he recites a traditional Muslim prayer and he asks Allah, look, if Jesus is the Messiah, could you show me? If he's the savior, could you show me? Allah is silent on the matter. But Jesus responded. He's wrong in his practice. He's wrong in his theology, but he stumbles on the right one. The Lord says, those who seek me will find me. Anyone who truly desires the Lord has him. You have him. Jesus sends her in what is true. Just for the record, Nabil's theology did fix it did get fixed. Just as Jesus corrected this woman in love, his thoughts about God got shaped. It's the same way he does for us. It's sanctification. It's growing in the knowledge of the Lord. We continue on. Matthew 35, 5.35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, hey, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Remember in the beginning when he says, hey, Jesus, you've got to come because my daughter is dying and you must come touch her before she dies. So now we have Jairus who's thinking it's in the right place, but it's wrong about Jesus. See, Jesus isn't an impediment to death. He's a ruler over it. He's a ruler over it. And Jesus recognizes this knowing, kind of like with Lazarus, that this daughter might have to die so he knows truly who I am. Jesus gets to the house, the daughter is dead, people are weeping. And Jesus comes to them and he does something that could make a lot of us very uncomfortable. He tells the people something rooted in what he believes to be true because of himself, for us and because of those who are in Christ. He says, hey, why are you crying because she's only sleep? This idea that, hey, whenever Jesus is present, death is transformed is something that is true for every single Christian. But we are terrified of having happened to us what happened to him in this. They stop and laugh at him, scoff at him. I'm sure at least some of us feel the pressure of not saying out loud what we believe out of fear that someone would point and laugh and say, you fool. You idiot. And he models it well for us. But not only is he modeling it, it's true. For anybody in Christ, when you say that they have died, Jesus is saying, that's just the wrong language. It's not true. 
She's only sleeping. It's true for every person in Christ. We don't like talking about death, I think generally, just speaking culturally. I think there's a lot of, I don't know, euphemisms of death passed away, transitioned um, in today's society where there's so much education. I have some friends that say, gone to be with the ancestors. I don't know which ones they're with, but um, just language, because death just seems so final. And it seems very real, very real. Jesus is saying it is real. That's just not the case for those who are in me. When I'm present, death isn't the case. They're sleep. Frank Turek, who is another apologist, often says that we don't die, we just change locations. For anyone in Christ, we don't die, we just change locations. I'll go a step further and say every single human being, when they die, changes locations. But for the one in Christ... We have hope because where we go and who we're with. The Lord of life, the one who is powerful over death, the one who sustains and comforts us, the one who gives us hope in our suffering. And so what he does, Jesus goes into this room. So now we have another girl. We got another unclean situation another body that shouldn't be touched. And yet this rabbi is touching this unclean body, making himself clean. And I'm just wondering if people are looking and saying, who do you think you are to be overstepping the laws this way? Another opportunity for his antagonist to look at him and say, hey, what makes you think these things don't apply to you? Or... What's so special about this unclean body that it's not unclean and that you get to do whatever you want with it? Jesus is seeing this as another daughter. Another daughter he has time for. Jairus and Jairus' wife are in the room watching Jesus do this. Man, what a profound lesson they must have learned. Because it's, it's beautiful enough to think, man, this rabbi, he shares the emotion and the love we have for our daughter in such a gentle way that Talitha Kumi, it's more of a term of endearment to wake her up like a father would his daughter. It's like, man, so beautiful that this rabbi, Jesus, we knew was powerful. He shares our love and emotion we have for our daughter. And I'm just saying that that's wrong. Jairus and his wife share the love and emotion Jesus has for his daughter. And that's the case for every single parent. That's why we do these baby dedications. It's like, Lord, this has come from you and this child belongs to you. And we just want to tell people, in case you forgot... We're surrogates, we've been entrusted to, to raise this child. That's why we want to raise him in the knowledge of who you are. And you can trust the Lord with his children. In this passage, we can see that you can trust the Lord even to the point of death. 
If you're looking at your stopwatch and it's been climbing more and more and more, years and years and years, time and the amount of time in a place where time is a commodity, waiting could feel like death. It can feel like death. If your timer is running low on what it is, hey, I'm getting too old for this marriage or I've been this, I'm getting, you know, whatever things can run out in this life, maybe life itself. Trust Jesus. We can trust him because we are his children and we can trust them with our children because they're his children. I had parents whose son was dead. Their son was dead, enticed by a lot of destructive things in this world, unclean in a lot of different ways. Yet they cried out to the Lord, must have. I gave them plenty of reason to. Lord, you need to come and touch this boy because he's dead. And it wasn't until college that he grabbed my hand and said, son, arise. And here's the beautiful aspect now. Now my parents are my brother and sister because of that. Sharing the love of a loving father, gracious father. I want you to survey your life as we prepare for communion. Are you too outcast, too much of an outcast for Jesus, too unclean. You look at his model and you say, hey, I fall too far beneath that. Maybe you look at his model as a parent and you say, man, I can't parent the way he parents. I'm such a failure. The reason he's here is because all of that is true. He's so good that we can trust him with ourselves knowing that we through Christ become the Lord's children. You never have to fear, fear being forsaken as a child. You never even have to fear your child being forsaken by God because the Lord did that one time and one time only to his own child so that through that child, we will be adopted as sons and daughters with an inheritance, an inheritance to come that when we leave these bodies and go to sleep, we enjoy that inheritance with him forever. That gives us the confidence to trust him even in the face of death. As a Christian, as we prepare for communion, man, you can come up. I want you to be thinking about that. That's what this gospel message is, a reminder that his body was broken so that our bodies would be made whole. His blood was spilled so that we would be cleansed of every sin and failure that we have committed, are committing, and will commit until the day we see him face to face. And that's why we have bold confidence to come before him to be reminded, you're dead, I'm your child, and I can trust you. If you don't know him, if you don't know him as a loving father, I pray you will cry out to him. Don't worry about the thoughts you think about it. Just know that he's the branch to grasp onto. Genuinely seek him. He'll reveal himself and you'll be made whole because our desire is to call you sibling, that we will serve this father together. Let's be reminded as we take communion.